You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. And welcome to this week's episode of Shrink the Virus. I am Steve Allen and I'm with my good friend... Rob Seltzer. Hey, why don't we? Uh, why don't you start the ball rolling by time stamping us and telling the audience who we are talking to today? Um, I will time stamp you, Stefano. It is the fourth of July, alle quattro e otto ore, which is four hours and eight minutes p.m. in the afternoon. Do you like my Italian? Oh, it's beautiful, man. You, we should do the whole podcast in Italian. We I know how to say. Um, Cappuccino. Um, that's about. Is C yes? C or am I got the right? I'm, I'm hopeless. I don't know. Spa- I don't know Italian. I don't know anything. Let's face it. You do know I barely all, know English. Yeah, very short show. If we did it all in Italian, but you know, one of the things that we're going to talk about today, well, just right now between us, is what we're doing to to basically distract ourselves, keep ourselves, uh, I guess, um, occupied, so we don't consume a whole lot of news and get worried by it. And what I'm doing is I'm learning Italian. Have I told you that? Yeah. You've been learning Italian since before COVID though, haven't you? I have, but I've now upped it. So I'm doing about an hour, an hour and a half every day. And what's really terrifying is I don't think I'm learning any better, but at least I'm sort of occupied and, you know. You've got to take your mind off it. Because what I'm I'm really interested to know, like I'm just unbelievably fascinated is, have you made any sourdough this week? Because, you know, if you don't give me a weekly sourdough report, um, my life feels empty. (laughs) <laughs> Every time. See, I was going to spring it. You've stolen my thunder. I was going to spring it on you. I was going to say, I'm also making sourdough, Steve. <laughs> hey, but there is a little bit of a sense of Groundhog Day, I've got to say. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a pretty frustrating time. So, you know, the point you raise is a really good one. You know, it's a time when you really do have to focus a little bit on your mental health again. Mm. You know, you have to sort It's sort of like, you know, when the first wave of COVID came through, we were all pretty stressed and we all spent a lot of time thinking about how we we're going to stay mm-hmm. sane. And, uh, you know, we were saying last Last week, you know, it's just a bit traumatic, this second mm-hmm. wave, and you know, it feels mm-hmm. like a bit of a kick in the guts. We talk about it a bit during today's interview too, um, and we will introduce who we're speaking to any second. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's a really good message. You've, almost, you've got to basically, it's, it's a bit like going back to the gym when you've got unfit. You've yeah. got to get back into the mental space, make sure you're sleeping okay, not drinking too much, eating well, make sure you're doing your exercise every day, keep in contact with friends, because, you know, there's a little bit of a sense of, oh, bloody hell in Victoria, you know, why are we in this spot? again structure 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 because so many of the things that we're used to be doing you know going out seeing movies you know being going to parties and stuff we're not doing anymore so we have a lot of us have a lot more time and you've got to put structure into that so i go to my happy place which is trying to learn italian and as italian speakers would know from my introduction i'm pretty terrible at it on to brighter things which is uh dr anna corin anna has joined us today Anna is uh, an emergency physician at the Alfred Hospital. She's also the supervisor there of intern training. She's a simulation trainer at Monash Health and a senior clinician in the quality unit at Monash Health as well, and an examiner at the Australian College of Emergency Medicine. Anna will be talking with us about basically what it's like being an emergency physician in probably one of the busiest emergency departments in Australia. 
you don't get much more frontline than that. So let's jump over to Anna Corrin. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. Hi, Anna. Hi, Rob. Hi, Anna. It's nice to see you. Hey, Steve. Nice hey, to thanks, see you. Thanks for doing Shrink the Virus. My pleasure. Your, your career is forever sullied by coming onto our podcast. You know that, don't you? <laughs> People will see you in the street and say, oh, you did that podcast. <laughs> they can't Anna. see me, can they? <laughs> no, no, luckily. Yeah. And, you know, for the listening audience, we are all in Saturday clothes. It's Saturday the 4th of July. I'm in my fancy flannelette shirt with because it's damn freezing outside. It is cold. I'm in my, I'm in a T-shirt. I'm looking pretty, pretty schmicko. And Anna, Anna's, she's not in the sad day clothes. She's looking like quite formal. I'm trying to look over the picture. Into Have the, I committed into... a faux pas then by <laughs> insulting our guest at the very beginning of the thing by saying you're in Saturday clothes? I just assumed I can only see your head, to be honest. <laughs> and she's in the room with her daughter and pet. What's your dog's name and your daughter's name? Love of my life is Nessie, uh, short Nessie. for Nescafe, because she looks like very... Um, Standard coffee, shall we say? Right. And uh, my older daughter, Amy. Hey, Amy. <laughs> hey, Nessie. For some reason, I thought Nessie was your daughter. And I wondered where you were going with she looks like Ness Cafe. I was, I was thinking, wow, this could go anywhere. Anyway, hey, uh, why don't we start the ball rolling? Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously, we've already uh, been telling the listeners about you just a minute ago, how you work in an ED. So tell us a little bit about you're in, you know, one of the biggest EDs in Melbourne. Um, have you seen much in the way of COVID patients so far? I personally haven't seen many COVID patients and, and the department has actually seen very few. Um, but we see an enormous amount of COVID suspect patients. Mm. Um, because the definition is so low bar, if you like, um, just about anybody that comes in is by definition a suspect COVID patient until proven otherwise. So does that mean, Anna, that you have to wear PPE for every single patient? Uh, for a large uh, proportion of our patients, we have to absolutely behave like they could be COVID positive. So tell us what uh, in actual kind of practicality, what you have to do to put on PPE, each article of clothing and stuff, what is it? So it depends on the tier that we need. Um, so the minimum that we have in the emergency department is scrubs that we're not allowed to wear to or from work. So they're to be worn only in the department. Um, we can't even go to the actual hospital cafe in them. So we really have oh. to the department to wear the scrubs and have to change out of them to leave um, and that includes footwear as well um, for every patient encounter we're in a mask um, so we're wearing the mask for hours um, mm. and uh, depending on what we're doing protective eyewear as well Right. Now, if they, if we're seeing somebody who's COVID suspect, we get an impervious gown as well. Um, and if we're doing any procedures that might um, produce aerosol, um, then we uh, wear an N95 mask as opposed to a surgical mask, um, as well as a shield over our protective eyewear. As well as gloves as well and stuff? Or? So gloves for uh, every encounter and then um, we get a hat as well if we're doing an intubation, for example, on a COVID suspect patient. What impacts that hat on your work, mm. having to do all that? Oh, I think 
Uh, there's been a lot of work that's gone into try and get reasonably fitting surgical masks that aren't hurting our ears. Um, so just pragmatically wearing those straps for so many hours. Um, but it really changes your dynamic of interaction with the patients. You know, we rely so much on visual cues and they rely so much on visual cues from us as well. And if we're all in masks and if the patient is high risk, they're in masks as well, you're left with eyes, um, which, you know, window to the soul, but still it's really different. Um, and we do feel like there's this barrier. Sometimes we're talking about very intimate um, uh, details of their presentation and having a mask on and them having a mask on does create a barrier, I feel. I often have to interview patients in masks because, you know, I've been a psychiatrist in a general hospital now for 30-odd years. And for many years, I worked in infectious diseases. These days, I'm in cancer. But a lot of the cancer patients have got very um, tight uh, issues around infections too. So I'm often seeing people in masks. And the thing I find is it's sort of harder to stay focused because it does, well, a couple of things. One, you know, you feel like you're behind a bit of a barrier a lot of the time. And so you've lost that sort of human-human connection a little bit. But also, I just find it annoying. For me, my glasses fog up the whole time. You know, it just drives me nuts. And so I'm constantly trying to fix the, you know, the mask over my nose so that it doesn't blow hot air up into my eyes. Ah! Anyway, yeah, it is weird. It's weird. What have you noticed, Anna, about the, the atmosphere in the ED since the pandemic? I mean, has it been the same? Has it changed? Is it changing? It's really, really different depending on where in the process we were. So right at the very beginning when we were getting all of our information from overseas, um, there, you know, we were preparing for an unknown, we were preparing for a tsunami, we were changing a lot of practices that we would normally do and there was enormous amount of training and there was an incredible amount of underlying, I'm going to say anxiety because, you know, I'd be getting 350 WhatsApp messages a day from the consultant body alone. Mm. Um, but, but also on the floor, there was a lot of confusion, what tier of PPE to wear, who's wearing which masks, let's defend the N95s, God forbid somebody puts that on when they shouldn't. Mm. Um, and uh, and I found that a lot of that was ameliorated by training. And we did an enormous amount of training in that first month, um, both um, senior medical and nursing staff. And that really changed the dynamic in the department. And what was a saving grace for us is that in those in that first month, actually our number of presentations were significantly lower than normal, hugely lower. Mm. And that was really a godsend because it allowed us to prepare and as I said the anxiety levels significantly decreased what once that was in place and it allowed us to really prepare from um, different groups craft groups so very much training with our anesthetic and intensive care pro um, colleagues as well and really trying to get a united front across the network which which was very very helpful. Yeah. What are, I'm interested, did you use, in the ED, could you use any telehealth? And the reason I ask it is we had a little bit of, 
you know, we had a lot of anxiety too. And, and sometimes the anxiety was spilling into anger because people mm. felt that we weren't um, addressing their concerns adequately, even though obviously we were following all the infectious diseases advice. And like one of the things I did, because people were very nervous about seeing patients, I just jumped on my push bike and rode down to JB. It's near my hospital and bought two iPads at least. So, you know, the people who were really anxious could get one of the iPads handed in. Now, as it of course turned out, the, you know, the tsunami didn't arrive and the iPads are sitting there. In fact, I just built the hospital for them the other day. I felt really bad. They've not been used. They might tell me to bugger off. Um, but, you know, did you try telehealth options? Did you search for those things or is, in, is ED all face-to-face? No, no, we did quite a bit of telehealth So and on numerous levels. So one of the problems is if you're looking after a, a suspect or even COVID confirmed positive case, um, the uh, segregation is so important. Now, if you're in a room with that patient and you need something, every time you open that door is potentially an infectious breach. Um, so we we had to set up a way of communicating um, from within the recess or the isolation cubicle to the external world. Um, we also found what that... What did you do, Anna? How did you do that communication? Oh, we went through different... Um, a trial of products, so including baby monitors, including iPads, mm-hmm. um, and they've. Currently... Steve has got two iPads for you in case you need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we actually got into a lot of trouble with that. There was a a breach on face on social media that uh, sort of criticised um, Apple at one stage, which is an unreasonable criticism. Um, uh, so actually, the community has been inordinately generous to our emergency department. So, so sorry, I interrupted you. So, what did you do for the communication between? In the cordoned off area and the outside area. How did yeah, you- so there, there is a telecommunication solution that's okay. like on a um, iPad type of uh, scenario, and that's in and outside the room. And we had it mounted and had to go through: is this how we're going to clean it? Um, because we, we really emptied the rooms of most things. They're, they're really oh, just right. essential items and even that's sort of in a rolled role. Um, so, and, and that evolved over time. I think one of the lucky things, again, is that we had such a small number of COVID-positive patients um, and we made so many mistakes in learning how to change practice, really, you know, in a situation that we weren't familiar with. So we, we had that ability to learn without actually having anyone at risk. Um, Oh, sorry, Rob, you go. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I was going to ask, with the non-COVID patients, have you noticed a difference in their presentation? The reason I'm asking is because I've heard that people are presenting later in their illness because they're scared of catching COVID within the hospital. Yeah, so uh, that was a real fear, particularly since our presentation numbers really plummeted in that first month. The concern is that people were coming late for their strokes, for their heart attacks, um, uh, significantly into their disease process with sepsis. Um, it's it's almost back to normal now. So I think that it's evolved and there was very um, pragmatic messaging out through the media to say we, we're doing everything we can to keep you safe um, in the hospital, if you're sick, come. Um, having said that, we're really encouraging people that don't need to come to not come. 
Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, you're just reminding me of um, the emergency department because I don't have one currently. And um, last time I was in the Alfred emergency, I did work at the Alfred, obviously, as you know, for 16, 17 years. The last time I was in there was actually for a clinical situation. I went in there not for me. I was with someone who'd hit their head. But, um, you know, it's what, just for the public. You know, it's one of them. It's the most exciting part of a hospital. You know, it's mm. all the comings and going. It can be everything is minimal and as trivial for as someone turning up because they've got a sniffle, which of course these days isn't trivial, it could be COVID, you know, yes. right through to multi-car accidents. Just out of interest, you know, how did you end up there? What, what made you choose to be an ED doctor? Just as a little aside, because I know Rob's going to get mad at me for leaving COVID for a second, but I'm no, just no, no, fascinated. no, no. I was going to say, Stevie, there should be, somebody should make a TV show about an emergency department. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was speaking to a friend of mine who said that one's about to be aired again, a brand new one already, shiny oh, and oh. ready to roll out. Um, so I, I think I fell out in love with emergency medicine even as a medical student. Um, one of my best friends and I both ended up being emergency physicians and we used to hang around the ED at the Alfred overnight and that sounds pretty weird, you know, <laughs> my evenings. What Where should we go tonight, to Chase's or the Alfred ED? Well, mm. <laughs> or Chase's, then the Alfred ED. Chase's, by then. the way, is a nightclub next to the Alfred for <laughs> those who aren't Alfred employees like us. And as medical students, as fifth years, we were actually accommodated there. So, um, uh, so there we go. Very close proximity. Yeah. But um, it, it meant that people were really keen to teach us because it was less busy in the middle of the night. So we had access to senior registrars who were very oh. willing to teach. And we became friends with the nurse um, coordinators and the various um, senior nurses on the wards. And they used to actually page us and tell us when interesting things were going down. So it was, it was actually a really collegiate and supportive environment. And then um, I liked it as a junior doctor. I loved the team play of it. Um, I loved the puzzle. So diagnostically, we, as you say, we get anything and everything come through in rapid fire. And the fact that it's it's intellectually stimulating to try and figure out what's wrong with the patients and the variety. Um, and I I like the fact that, the continuity is, is variable. We certainly have our regulars, but often, you know, my, my bit's the initial bit and then I don't see the patient again necessarily. Mm. You have to be able to rapidly assess somebody, be incredibly focused because it could be anything and um, you can't be overly obsessive, can you? You can't have to know everything to fix things, which is hard to do as a doctor, you know? How do you do that? How do, I mean, I've, there is a particular ED type of person that just just can focus, fix things quickly under enormous pressure and not be distracted by all the other noise. I mean, is that a personality type, do you think? Am I right? Or what do you reckon? Yeah. I think it's not by accident that a lot of us choose ED. I think that yes. we're wired that way to start with. Having said that, as a group of consultants and, and registrars, we're a hugely diverse group of people, um, but we are more attracted to that quick fire, rapid decision-making, uh, breadth, not depth necessarily. Mm. Um, but I, I do think that there's some 
some uniformity in a very varied personality group. The, the fact that you're having to see a lot of people and work off limited information, you don't have the benefit of every test under the sun and you have to make quick decisions, means you're working in a high-risk environment. Yep. Um, it's inevitable that you're going to make mistakes because it's just inevitable because yep. sometimes it's going to be the rare presentation that's not the most obvious thing, which suggests to me that, and it's an observation over the years, that ED doctors you know, can tolerate risk quite well and they're pretty tough-spirited. Um, and so I'm thinking back to COVID, what impact does being a little bit of a risk taker and tolerating all that, you know, I'm wondering whether you think the ED doctors, did they take COVID as seriously or, or is, you know, your training just overcome your, you know, your ability to tolerate risk? Do you know what yeah. I'm getting at? I know I've, answered, I've asked that question in a vague manner. I guess what I'm saying is a lot of them are a little bit cowboyish and I'd be slightly worried that they wouldn't take the risk seriously enough. Not not in, I, don't, I don't mean worried in a no. health and safety me, means. I mean they might take on more personal risk than I would suggest is wise. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, certainly we as a senior group were shielding our juniors, so we wouldn't allow our interns, for example, to see COVID patients um, and we were the primary people chosen to do, say, COVID suspect intubations and that's one of the riskiest mm -hmm. environments for disease spread. Um, what, uh, and I, I understand what you're asking, but I guess so many of us either have children or older parents or um, and certainly have an understanding that if we get it and spread it, that would be um, really disastrous as well. Mm. So we, no, none of us um, said we're not comfortable with this, let's, let's uh, bail out. Uh, we did choose to put older clinicians to a, a bigger question mark whether they saw COVID positive patients or not, just because the potential was so much um, graver than younger clinicians. And certainly with our pregnant um, staff, yeah. we yeah. got them out of the COVID suspect seeing group. Um, but nobody, everybody put up their hand to be involved. It was quite extraordinary. Really? Wow, um, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, and and but we did take it seriously because we saw that the stakes were high. So um, that that was um, that was important, and not to just step up and do things. Uh, one of your roles, Anna, is as the uh, head supervisor of, uh, of of intern training. Uh, this must have caused you, or caused me headaches, because all of a sudden you've got this new batch of brand spanking new doctors who are supposed to be given a whole range of teaching throughout their first year, all the way from surgery to ED, to, you know, um, doing medicine, to doing a bit of specialty, maybe a bit of psychiatry. And now that's all changed because of COVID. Can you just walk us through what's happened to these poor interns? All right. So actually, that's also been a journey. Yeah. Um, and uh, so when COVID started, it had huge impact on the interns uh, on so many levels. So we had to stop um, their access to theatre. So their surgical um, experience was changed. Yeah. We stopped elective surgery. So the number of patients that they were, they were seeing and looking after 
um, was significantly lower. We stopped them going on consultant ward rounds because we wanted to limit the access of um, doctors walking through the hospital. Um, we had significantly lower presentations to the emergency department so they were seeing less people less people were being admitted to the ward so their workload decreased so their exposure decreased and then we the department of health said well we're going to freeze the um, junior doctors movement so whatever rotation they're in they're going to be in for 20 weeks Um, and depending on what rotation they were on would very much determine what experience and clinical learnings they would have. So freezing them for 20 weeks had huge implication to their uh, training completion. So as a network... I heard everyone talking about this, and I must admit, you know, there's a lot of anxiety amongst all the trainers across the different hospitals, especially because some were stuck in rotations they didn't really like, and they didn't, and so they wanted to move on. But I must admit, I thought to myself at the time, it ain't the end of the earth. You're going to have a 40 year career, whether you spend uh, an extra an extra five, ten weeks somewhere. I mean, I know I know it's not ideal, but I, I, I don't know. I wasn't. Is it was it really huge? And I'm missing I'm missing something, obviously. Uh, Look, I think coupled with the fact that the medical students, the final years, weren't getting their usual exposure either, that would mean two years of doctors that hadn't had the usual training and exposure. And I think that not all rotations were equal. So, for example, you know, the um, guys were in a smaller hospital doing surgery and actually their workload went down to zero. That's 20 weeks of, well, it wasn't ever zero, but it was very, very low at one stage um, just because everything was cancelled in those early weeks. Um, you, you, you know, 20 weeks is a great deal of experience loss for, for those trainees um, and certainly some rotations where they had different you know you know psychiatry for example fantastic learning for 20 weeks but how much clinical acute medicine would they have learned um during that rotation and it's a huge chunk of their year you trust (laughs) trust me if you're short on doctors don't get rob and i to come and work in (laughs) our clinical exposure is not great yeah no i think i'm just old burnt out and cynical um yeah it is you've got to have them well trained we don't want them wearing badges for the next five years saying i had an inadequate intern experience please avoid me plus the the fifth year medical students as well so it was two years worth of doctors that may have potentially been hugely affected what what about your interns in the emergency department they would have been shielded from the potentially dangerous uh, covid cases as you just explained plus there was less uh less people coming into a day so what did they do so we were really mindful of that yeah. and um, I kept saying to them, this is not normal. <laughs> um, <laughs> what, what was good for them is that it actually hugely increased the opportunity to teaching on the run. All right. So yeah. we, we had more time once our sort of teaching needs were met to um, spend more time with them and go much more in-depth per patient. Mm. So a different experience rather than a bad experience, I mm. guess. Sure. Hey, um, you know, obviously everyone's aware that in Victoria in the last uh, whatever it is now, you know, three or four weeks, we've been having increasing cases, uh, you know, 400 odd. Some people are calling it a second wave. Um, how are you preparing now? Is it, you know, what's the atmosphere like now? Are you doing stuff differently in preparation for what's happening? Um, I think we're better at following um 
the processes because we've had an opportunity to think about it a lot more um, and it really is a change in our usual practice. Um, It certainly slows everything down. So you're donning, you're doffing, um, x-ray takes much longer. Donning and doffing, taking on and taking off. Um, But your uh, your flow and effects on investigation is much, much slower. So, for example, um, access to x-ray, they have to do a a different clean after a COVID suspect patient. Access to CT takes the CT scanner off for a while. So it it really does slow everything down for us. Um, And we're... We're sort of fine-tuning our processes with um, ambulance offloads, for example. So a lot of work has been um, done to to try and simulate a patient journey into the department um, and uh, uh, getting that right as well and making it safest for the patient. In terms of the journey, what about hotspots? Are you looking at postcodes of where people come from? Yes, it has impact in that um, their family can't come in. Um, So as it is, the visitor availability is really different to what it normally is. Mm. And at times it's brought huge challenges to, well, the families foremost, but we feel that flow on pain as well a bit, Mm. um, particularly if the patient's critically unwell. Um, But, for example, you know, looking after patients where the family would have been really um, present in other times, but because they've come from a hotspot that they weren't allowed to even come to the department. What do you know? Sorry, Rob, I saw you taking a big gap there, so I'm jumping in. I was going to ask, hotspots? I actually had a... I spent a couple of minutes before looking up what a hotspot was before the podcast because I must admit, you know, my initial... I said this on last week's podcast too. You know, I was a little bit surprised that when our numbers were like, you know, some of the suburbs are 20 out of 170,000 people. I was surprised that they were hotspots. Like Hume initially, people were making a big deal. It was 40 out of, I think it was, yeah, 170. And the next suburb I looked at was 20 out of 160,000. And uh, so I thought, what what the heck is a hotspot? And how do you define it? It turns out that, the you know, it's obviously a um, just a, a definition that our government's made for this particular circumstances. So I'm sure it will change. But the definition was five or more people since the 1st of June. June, who had acquired their COVID from community, you know, for in the community. So obviously it didn't take into account overseas people. Um, so hang on a second. So if five people in a month, because we're now recording in July, if yep. five people in the last month contract COVID in that suburb, it becomes a hotspot. Is that right? Well, this definition that I read yeah. was on a government document from the 25th of June. Now, it struck me that they're going to have to, they can't, obviously, can't stay the same. It'll have to be something like five or more people in the last three weeks or yeah, something yeah. like that. But it still struck me as, you know, when you look at the overseas numbers, you know, with, you know, the US having hundreds of thousands of cases every damn five minutes, it seems. Um, yeah, it, it's, it, it did strike me as quite low, but obviously that illustrates how rapidly the virus can get out of control. So, yeah, and that was partly why I was asking that question about the postcodes because the reality is, you know, still the chances of meeting someone in one of those postcode suburbs that are hotspots who actually has COVID is still very low. But I think it is, um, it has spread very, very quickly. And our community spread up until very recently. It's been super low. So this is a major change for us in Victoria. And then they're talking about super spreaders. So there's some patients that have, I don't know, whether it's a high viral load or there's something about them that that means that their disease um, 
is more readily spread to those around them. So, do we know if there's any biological? Is is that uh, is there you know medical evidence for super spreaders, or is it just because it sounded a little bit too science fictiony for me? It sounded like someone <laughs> sort of said, oh, "I wonder if there's a super spreader out there," and you know it sort of hit the media. Mind you, I did hear Professor Sharon Lewin Lewin being asked about it for you know the director of the Doty Institute, <laughs> and she didn't she she didn't scoff at it. So it, it there must be some evidence for this concept of super spreader, I guess. I think they're definitely researching it because yeah. it seems like there are clusters that seem to spread or some spread, I, I don't know. I think they're definitely looking at whether some people can carry it more than others. Now, listeners to the podcast didn't see Steve and me genuflect when he said Sharon Lewin because she is she is just, you know, we hold her up as the expert of experts. She's, you know, well seasoned in this uh, field. She communicates the science brilliantly um, and, and really gives, uh, you know, gives us uh, what pause, pause to think about things, you know. Well, why, so, why, are we, why are we boosting Sharon right now, Roberto? Although one of our previous guests is having dinner with her tonight. I was chatting to one of our previous guests I'm not, earlier today. There's no today. reason. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not yeah. boosting her for any other reason. That she's, I thought you maybe that, you're going out to dinner with her tonight and you wanted to <laughs> highlight like, I'm going out to dinner, no, no, no. To the dinner too. It's just, I want, I want, I'd like listeners when they, when they hear sh- you know, her name to say, okay, I'm going to pay attention. because she really she's, certainly, she's certainly one of the people I, you know, when I hear her on the radio, I turn yeah. it up and I focus. <laughs> she's damn she's damn good and she's been a great voice of reason throughout this whole thing hey another thing i just wanted to ask on that topic though what do you make i just it's just an interesting one for both of you what do you i was reading this in the paper today lots of headlines about it Ten thousand people in victoria have supposedly refused tests now just to give you the background i looked up to see whether it looked legit you know whether again it was just someone said oh there must have been ten thousand people no but it did look like they were keeping data on it and uh and it was out of about one hundred and sixty four thousand tests so they've been doing blitzes in these hotspots and they're up to one hundred and sixty four thousand have had tests in those hotspots but they've had ten thousand so about one in sixteen refusing to have a test what do you make of it theories ideas thoughts I reckon, if you, I mean, you've just posed this, so I would say one of the reasons people would refuse is because it's not entirely comfortable to have a little thing put up your nose. That might be one reason. Discomfort, yep. Discomfort. I agree. That's one of them. What else? I'll now hand over to Anna for her thought, <laughs> so I think of the second one. <laughs> I have had a, a swab where we did a surveillance drive, so not asymptomatic testing. It wasn't that bad, tolerable. Um, it's only a flesh wound. Um, yeah, I, I'm puzzled by it, I must say, um, because I think that we we know that people can be asymptomatic or with the minutest of symptoms and be COVID positive, and I uh, I'm finding it difficult to reconcile why you wouldn't want to know that. I, I, I've got another. How about privacy? People feel that uh, they would prefer their health information to be kept private and don't want big government to know about it. Is that a reason? Yeah, I reckon that'd be one. I, I, I tried to read a few articles yeah. to see what the others were. Do you want me to tell you or do you want to keep guessing? Uh, I want to keep guessing. Okay. There's the obvious one. There's the obvious one that I know both of you know you just haven't said it. It sort of comes onto that one. There's a whole lot of people who... Don't believe it's real. The conspiracy theorists—that's the obvious one. No, but there wouldn't be one in sixteen that don't believe it's real. I don't know, but that's the what's grabbing really? all the news, the media attention. You guys haven't read the paper today. That's what's no, grabbing all the media attention. Yeah. That, you know, because there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there. I, again, I haven't verified this, but one of my aunts lives in Hampton, and yeah. she got a something in her letterbox. 
So, um, and it was apparently delivered down around all, you know, uh, yeah. large parts of Hampton, basically saying COVID's a big conspiracy. Don't listen to it. Don't get caught up in it. It's yeah. a government conspiracy. And of course, there's lots of articles about this. And the concern is that some of the conspiracy theories are driving people to say, why should I have this test? I, really, I could I, look. I know that there are conspiracy theories. But I wouldn't have thought they would have been that prevalent. Like, yeah, I know. Yeah. Maybe, oh, but the, some of the other reasons were was right? some of them are obvious reasons. Like people so have already had the test, so they're saying no, I don't want to have the test because I had it had one. Oh, three okay. days ago. Yeah. That was another one. And then another answer um, that came up in some of the questions that I could see in the newspapers was that people were scared about the consequences. Does this mean oh, I'll have to be? Right, does this mean yeah. I can't go to work? Does yeah. this mean you know I've got stuff that I'm doing tomorrow? And does this mean I have to wait till I get the test result? And so they're anxious about the uh, the, the consequences. consequences. Of it, yeah. I think it is fair to say that people are a bit confused about what they can and can't do. Um, and I think they, they're probably, we do need to have a look at the clarity around that information that's being given to them. You know, if they get a swab, what really do they have to do? What does isolation mean, uh, et cetera? So we could probably do I think I think that's very true, but I think it's quite understandable because, you know, it sort of struck me. I reckon I've read the equivalent of a textbook now on pandemics in the last three or four months. And uh, so I've got a pretty good knowledge of it, but then I'm used to reading about medical information. I've been doing it for 30 years. Now, imagine you've got no medical background and all this information is coming at you from all directions. And of course, a lot of it on social media too, which is distorted or sometimes just frankly bullshit. And so... I can understand why everyone's confused and I can understand why the government hasn't been able to beat that. I just think it's a really big learning curve we're all on. I reckon we'll get good at it after about a year. I, I, I'm, I'm serious. It's just so much tricky information. Do you know I hate also, to say it, but I think it'll still be around in a year. Oh, it will be. I'm sure, yeah. Do you not think there should be? There is a, there is a federal government app, but should there not be a, a, like a state government app which tells you what you can and can't do, where the hotspots are, because that's changing every couple of days. Because now you have to go onto the website and have a look at the DHHS website and you know all that sort of stuff. There should just be like a very easy, bing, go to one page and you can see this, that and the other. Uh, that sort of is. Maybe you haven't seen it because I only okay. saw it. I actually, to be honest, I only saw it today and downloaded it and looked at it this morning. Um, and it's, it, there's a COVID app from the government, not the COVID yeah. safe app that yeah, the other COVID. I've got the COVID app. Yeah. yeah, and it is from the Australian government, but on that there's links to Victoria, so you can you can press on any state. So under restrictions, you can press on general restrictions from the federal okay. government. You can press on okay. Victoria. Um, there's so many good bits in it. I was cruising it um, this morning, and it, it's it's really I, I thought it was damn good quality, and I encourage everyone who loves an app to download it. <laughs> so what? That's the COVID app. From not the COVID safe app, but just I'll COVID. I have to close it. It's just called coronavirus from the Australian government. I read about it in the paper and downloaded it. What you know with this wave? What's your vibe, Anna, on how stressed the staff are this time? Um, I think less stressed about COVID as such and personal safety because I think. We're so much more ready than we were at the beginning and, um, you know, there's been an enormous amount of preparation and training and education um, and we certainly haven't had a challenge in getting PPE equipment. You know, we've we've had ready access to that the whole way through really. Um, but I think that... It's getting harder in that our numbers are certainly approaching 
near normal now and yet our processes are taking a lot longer because of the extra stuff that needs to be done around um, PPE and cleaning, etc. Um, so I think from that point of view, the, there can be quite a lot of fatigue. Yeah, that's that's what I was wondering. Too. Yeah, I agree. We're better prepared, but there was a there's been a real sense around my hospital that people are are burnt out, fatigued, tired. Tons of staff haven't had a holiday because no one's going on leave. So you know, most people would you know all the leaves gone. There's been a sense that we've just been working so hard for so long, and then along comes the second wave, and it's sort of like punched people in the guts a little bit. Like you know, everyone sort of thought, oh, we've done so well, thank God, thank God, that was really hard work, but we've got through it. And then like, wham! Oh. I liked your metaphor from last week, Steve. That what was uh, it? you've just run a marathon, and you're told you're going to have to run another marathon. Yeah. That's the kind of feeling, yeah. Yeah, there was a real vibe around my hospital this week. You know, we had a staff briefing and uh, lots of questions coming through about this is just, you know, people really stressed and tired from the whole thing. And so we did a whole new push around staff well-being and, you know, reminding people to finish work on time, take their breaks, have leave if they can, um, you know, turn off the 24-hour news cycle, make sure their sleep's good, make sure they're eating well, make sure they're exercising and providing lots of, you know, support and access to, you know, support and help. Can you tell he's done this about a hundred times, Anna? <laughs> he goes onto autopilot. I can say the wellness sphere has been very interesting, actually. And um, I was the medical lead for wellness in the emergency department. Uh, fascinatingly, in the first bit, it was all about coffee. Uh, and we, we sorted that out because, as I said, we couldn't leave the emergency department. And how do we get coffee to ED staff? Um, so so, what to do? Let's get a coffee machine. All manner of, yeah, we actually had one donated. Um, oh, lovely. That's great. Thanks very much, uh, <laughs> along with some pods. Um, and uh, uh, the local cafes are, have been super supportive um, because, of course, we couldn't get anything external because um, the hospital was almost shut down initially yeah, yeah. and nothing could be delivered. Um, so, but we, we have sorted out the coffee situation. But, and we're really pushing for staff to take leave because I think yeah. it has been exhausting, emotionally exhausting. And uh, this is a question we ask every guest. Take a breath, center yourself. <laughs> he makes it Tra sound scary. Every week he makes it sound scary. <laughs> it's not. Heads up. Say on. <laughs> Um, we're doing a lot more yoga, a lot. Yeah, say, okay, get into down face dog, <laughs> push out through your heels, up through your arms. <laughs> um, now, what's one thing you've been doing better or better differently now as compared to before the pandemic? Uh, a few things, really. I think, um, so I do some of my jobs are of course completely face to face mm. and other stuff is not and so one of my roles I've been able to do from home which has sort of bought me an hour of commuting uh, extra so I have been doing a lot more yoga actually uh, a lot more walks I live bayside so the beach um, can be a crowded place but that water is inordinately calming um, and beautiful. The dog has absolutely adored the amount of time that we've been spending at home and with her. Um, and I've learned to crochet. Oh, really? Crochet is your sourdough. 
That's it. That's it. Well, uh, we're sort of toying with keto, so sourdough would have been a disaster, really. <laughs> Just by the way, whenever I mention the word sourdough to Steve, I can see his blood pressure rise. For the first <laughs> ten, for the first ten podcasts, he told us every week, and I've made some sourdough. He <laughs> <laughs> thinks I've become a stereotype. <laughs> it turned me off sourdough. <laughs> hey, uh, and it's been <laughs> it's been so fantastic you joining us and giving us an insight into the life of ED during this pandemic. It, you know, ED is the genuine front line and uh you know it strikes me that it must have been a really scary place and so you know well done and hats off to you and your crew thank you so much thanks for having me on thanks anna so that was anna corin telling us about all things emergency department wise we hope you've enjoyed the show don't forget to tell your friends and subscribe. Of course, we have a Facebook page and an Instagram page and all that sort of stuff. It's all under Shrink the Virus if you search it. And in fact, our email is shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. Rob? Steve also has a website called steveellen.com with lots of info on it. Don't forget to tune into Triple R. Our show called Radio Therapy is on every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. And, of course, the thank yous for the people at Triple R who um, did all the effort to get this show up and running for us. Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth and Michael. And, of course, a special thanks to Anna Corrin for being on the show this week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Ciao. Cheers. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.